Hello, I'm Paul Evans and welcome to Airing Pain, a programme brought to you by Pain Concern, the UK charity providing information and support for those of us with pain and healthcare professionals. This edition has been funded by a grant from the Scottish Government. Pain, by definition, is subjective. To try to measure pain objectively is really a little bit of a stupid question. Well, even the most stupid questions have good answers. Now, are we predisposed to developing chronic pain? Does it run in families? Anna Valdez is reader and associate professor at the University of Nottingham. Her research is focused on finding the epidemiological, that's the study of how often and why diseases occur in different groups of people, and genetic risk factors that contribute to a disease. So, is there a genetic factor to chronic pain? We think there is, and there are some published studies showing, for example, that for chronic widespread pain, there is a contribution from genes, and there is a contribution also to things like migraine, to severe migraine. Some of it is familial, some of it is not familial. But it doesn't mean that if you have this one gene, you're going to get chronic pain. What happens with all these complex traits, as is chronic pain, which is very complex. Clinically, it's complex in terms of treatment, and the causes are complex. But we, more than trying to understand if it runs in families, which is important, I guess it's important to know if it runs in families, but more than that, what we're trying to understand by using genetics as a way of investigating the molecular causes of pain, hoping that by understanding what are the molecular causes of pain, we might be able to treat it better, or to diagnose it earlier, or to diagnose it better. So it's not just about finding the gene for pain, but finding which molecular pathways, what it changes in. Is it in your nerves? Is it in your muscles? Is it, is it in the spine? Is it in the brain? In, and in which part of the brain? And is this something that's really inherited? Or is it, you know, so that, that's the kind of questions that we're trying to address. Those are the questions. What are the answers? The answer is that it's early days. So we do know that, for example, for people who have arthritis pain, say from their knee, if you, you can have a very unhealthy knee when we look at your x-ray, but you have no pain. And someone else has a knee as unhealthy or even less unhealthy than yours, and they have very severe pain. And what we're finding is that some of these genetic variants involved in peripheral pain, so in the pain that, that comes from your body, how you feel it actually influence the risk of you having painful osteoarthritis or not having painful osteoarthritis, giving the same amount of joint damage. But also we are finding when we look at people who have had a surgery and have these uh, nerve damage type of pain, we find that some of the molecules that are associated with that, the genes associated with that, are brain genes related to synaptic plasticity. And one of these genes, actually, we find it seems to go also uh, in an association with fibromyalgia, a weaker correlation with fibromyalgia. So maybe we're finding some of the molecules that are implicated in chronic pain. I have fibromyalgia. I can remember 25 or so years ago being asked questions like, is there depression in the family? Is there alcoholism in the family? Because there may be a link, not through alcoholism, but 
the mechanisms that involve mm -hmm. that and depression? Well, we do find, I mean, I'm not looking directly at depression. As I say, I'm only looking at fibromyalgia. Do the results we find for this type of specific pain of patients after surgery, is it similar to some of the things we can see in fibromyalgia? But in our case, we're looking at something called catastrophizing, which is how an individual copes with pain. We ask a person questions like, uh, how often do you feel that you cannot go on with pain or do you feel your pain is really terrible? And the more they have this catastrophizing trait, the worse their pain that is very related to depression and anxiety. Their pain is worse, their quality of, li of life is worse, and their sleep quality is worse. So that is kind of a psychological trait if you want. But what we find is that the same genes that are associated with the pain First, this catastrophizing trait is actually, if you look in the brains of these people, this correlates with features in the limbic cortex, in specific part of the brain. So that already tells us that, yes, it's in your brain, but it doesn't mean that if I give you a slap in the face, you're going to get over it. There is something physiologically going on. And then we find that the same genes that are associated with this nerve damage type of pain are also associated with these catastrophizing or these feature of pain where people feel that they cannot go on with the pain and that this is terrible. So pain is an extremely complex trait to study with many components to it. We're not saying that genetics is going to be the cure for chronic pain, but we think we can contribute a little bit to help us understand it better. That's Anna Valdez of Nottingham University. So what is going on in the brain to make us experience pain Professor Rolf Dietlif Trieder of Heidelberg University in Germany is a neurologist. That's to do with the nervous system, the brain, the spinal cord and the nerves. So to take a very simple example, if someone steps on my toe, why do I feel pain? You give a very good example. It seems to be very simple that when someone steps on your toe, your toe hurts. This actually is very complicated neurobiology. You have sensors in your toe that detect this damage and they generate signals that are sent up to the brain along certain pathways. Then the brain recognizes this activity and the brain has to have some concept of having a body. So the brain then projects this feeling into that part of the body where the brain thinks the information is coming from. In the case of someone stepping on your toe, the information is coming from the toe, the brain thinks it's coming from the toe, so your toe hurts, and this is where the damage is. However, you can also have the brain think it's coming from the toe when the damage is compression of a nerve from a bulging disc in your lower spine. The signal will end up in the brain along the same pathway, but it will not be generated at the toe, but somewhere along the pathway in this case, close to the lower spine. Or it could be generated in the brain itself. In all of these cases, it's very difficult for the brain to tell where the information is coming from. There's a term, we call this projection. So pain is basically projected to some part of the body. This is where we feel it. And very often, this part is exactly where we have the injury. Then everything is easy. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because if somebody has stepped on my toe, the brain identifies that the toe has been stepped on, sends the pain down there, which makes me move my foot. Yeah. It's figurative to say send the pain down there. I use that, actually I have slides on that, that looks like the pain is sent down there, 
Of course, in reality, this is entirely happening within the brain. But I think it's a nice concept of saying the, the brain has a little puppet of ourselves and sends the pain down there where things it's coming from. And there are many ways of having a mislocation. I think pretty soon there will be an anniversary of Henry Head describing the head zones of pain referral from affections of internal organs. So there's a certain regularity. So when your colon has been damaged, this is misprojected, but it's misprojected according to certain rules. And these rules are known to medical specialists. So when a patient reports a certain type of back pain, the medical specialist should have the idea this may from the colon or what many people know left arm could be related to the heart or the gallbladder could be right shoulder and things like that and it's very important to acknowledge that in a simple situation that you have an injury and it hurts where the injury is it's the same complex mechanism and the reason it's important to acknowledge that is because many patients feel pain in parts of their body where there's no injury at all now, some people might think those patients are crazy because we think the brain always localizes a pain to an, uh, an injured body part, but this is actually not the case. Therefore, it's important to know this so that you do not discriminate against people who report pain in a body part where there is no injury. It only means that the mechanism of that pain is not coming from an injury in that body part. And this gets me to neuropathic pain and nerve pain because in neuropathic pain it's always the case that the part of the body where you, the patient reports the pain has no injury because neuropathic pain is generated by the alarm system itself. We call it nociceptive system, the system that normally responds to injury. And this system can also just generate activity on its own. If you have a car alarm system, you know what I'm talking about. These alarm systems can go off without an external cause, and the alarm is real, and you have to do something. At least you have to switch it off. And the same is true for nerve pain. Well, the explanation sounds easy. So how does one turn it off? Ah, okay. That's the more difficult part. Maybe I should give a historical perspective on neuropathic pain and its treatment. There was the term intractable pain in the past century, and if you look at the situations that were called intractable pain, they're basically neuropathic pain conditions. Phantom limb pain was sometimes counted as such. In the context of back pain, when there had been surgery, that likely also caused additional damage to nerves, failed back surgery syndrome, and, and many other conditions, pain from uh, diabetic neuropathy. So there was this term intractable pain. In the 1990s, some literature came up, or somewhat earlier, that called How to Treat Intractable Pain, which sounds like a contradiction in terms, but it turned out that people had discovered some ways of actually helping those patients that do not respond to the ordinary analgesics. Why was it called intractable pain? Because normal non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs didn't help much, and also opioids at that point were considered not to be helpful. So the standard treatments that were also developed for post-operative pain and for cancer pain didn't really work. Now, treating intractable pain had, I think, two historical backgrounds. One was coming from this cognitive behavioral therapy background, which we would interpret as utilizing learning mechanisms for the benefit of the patient, 
which is logical because some intrinsic learning mechanisms actually also cause the pain. And the other part is pharmacological treatment that was coming from two areas that seemed to be not very much related to pain. So the observation was that antidepressants were sometimes helpful and anticonvulsants, so drugs that are designed to treat epilepsy, are sometimes helpful. With respect to the anti-epilepsy drugs, uh, the, the mechanism at first glance is relatively straightforward. Epilepsy is too much electrical activity, uh, speaking very simply, and pain, chronic pain, means electrical activity in the brain. So if you can somehow interfere with the electrical activity, it's not totally implausible that it might work. You're turning down that. You're turning down electric damping activity. It, yeah. Damping electric activity. Of course, not everything that dampens electric activity works against epilepsy. Not everything works against pain. So clearly you have to have the clinical trial data to see what works. So some of the anticonvulsants work and some don't. So these two parts, epilepsy and, and neuropathic pain treatment, have some things in common, but some are also different. And the other part, antidepressants, has two components. So people who are depressed often have pain as part of the clinical picture of depression. And in turn, if you have chronic pain, this really deteriorates your mood. So anybody with chronic pain fulfills some of the criteria of depression. And therefore, one of the concepts was that maybe we're treating the depression part and this helps the patient. This probably contributes, but it's not the entire story. These drugs can be beneficial also in patients who are not depressed. The antidepressants interfere with certain neurotransmitter systems. So the neurotransmitter systems, the neurotransmitters are the systems where messages pass from, from, cells, one, from one cell to another yes, in the brain. Yeah, that's right. We had talked about electrical activities. So the electrical signal stays within one neuron, within, within nerve cell that can travel a long distance, almost along the entire body, from your toe to your brainstem in the extreme case. But if you want to get a signal from one cell to the other, you need some chemical signal. And there are some neurotransmitters, actually a relatively long list of neurotransmitters. There are some that basically transmit excitatory signals. That's glutamate, and that's involved in pretty much everything. So it's very difficult to treat any specific disease based on glutamate. But there are some other neurotransmitters that have more restricted roles. Two of these transmitter systems are involved in signals that are from coming from the brain stem to the spinal cord and modulate the signal transmission in the spinal cord. And the traditional labeling has been a descending inhibition so that the body can inhibit the pain signal by the brain stem controlling how much input the brain gets. And here we have two transmitters, serotonin and noradrenaline which are also important in the context of depression. So the antidepressant drugs modulate the actions of serotonin and noradrenaline. And when you modulate those actions, this can also be beneficial for pain. Those drugs are the SSRIs, the serotonin selective reuptake inhibitors. It's a very good point for you to bring this up because they are the ones where the two fields again have separated. So it's like with epilepsy, where there's some 
overlap, neuropathic pain and epilepsy, but also some differences. Same is true with respect to antidepressants and neuropathic pain treatment. The very classical antidepressants, the tricyclic antidepressants like amitriptyline, off pattern for many years, is very nonspecific, does many things. Now, for the treatment of depression, people have noticed that to really focus on the serotonin part is very helpful because when you have fewer side effects, you can still get the benefit. So these selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors are more modern and better antidepressants, and they don't help against pain. Because for pain, apparently the noradrenaline side is more important. So that seems to be a common denominator. Those antidepressants that also influence the noradrenaline side, they are also good against pain. Many people are prescribed antidepressants for their neuropathic pain. Does that mean that depression is the illness? No, because we know that in neuropathic pain patients, antidepressants can help the patients when they're not, even when they're not depressed. Having said that, we have this concept that's called comorbidity. So a certain person can have more than one disease. And it's very frequent that a person who has a chronic pain could also have a depression, in that case maybe as a secondary consequence of the chronic pain. Because depression is a mood disorder and clearly chronic pain deteriorates the mood. And then what clinicians often do when they have a choice of different pharmacological treatments and each treatment addresses more than one thing, they have to tailor this to the individual patient. So if a patient has a chronic pain that has deteriorated the mood of that patient, then you would go for a medication, an antidepressant, that helps the depression and the pain. Another typical comorbidity, when you have chronic pain, you don't sleep very well. And actually, you sleep much worse than patients who have a sleep disorder. And some of the medications that are used against neuropathic pain improve sleep. So if you have a patient that has a major sleep problem and chronic neuropathic pain, you would go to that drug class that improves also the sleep condition. Again, if you have a patient that has their comorbidity of depression, then you go for the antidepressant. If there's a comorbidity of sleep disturbance, you go for the uh, medication that helps sleep. And the same logic applies to basically all the other drugs because the older drugs also have multiple mechanisms and this is really the task of the prescribing doctor to take into account the entire situation of the patient. The patient doesn't just have one diagnosis, usually they have more than one thing. And even if the deteriorated mood does not yet fulfill the clinical diagnosis of depression, it might be helpful to improve the mood one way or the other. And I shouldn't end this without saying that medications aren't everything. The treatment is always multimodal, and that means there has to be some behavioral, psychological component to it, and usually also some element of exercise or physical therapy. Yes, the, the term comorbidity, no person is one illness. In fact, a person is not an illness. A person is a person. Absolutely. And chronic pain is a biopsychosocial condition, which means that it's life, it's mind, and it's, it's living. Yeah. We are all those things. This maybe brings us to the point of quality of life. When we talk about quality of life in the context of chronic pain, we think of uh, aspects such as everyday activities, family life, 
sleep and so further and so on. However, when you talk about quality of life in general terms, then the absence of pain is one of the major constituents of quality of life. So if you talk, let's say, about endocrinology and peripheral neuropathies, the presence or absence of pain is a major issue for the quality of life, and actually it's even a predictor of mortality there. The same can probably be said about cardiovascular disease, definitely for cancers. So if the cancer is controlled and there is no pain, quality of life is better than when the cancer is controlled and there is pain. So clearly pain, or rather the absence of pain, is a major factor of quality of life. But it's not the only one. And this is in this cycle and social domain of the biopsychosocial model. It sounds very complicated, but day-to-day living activities play a major role. The well-being from the patient's perspective, not some documented biological parameter, blood count or imaging uh, finding, but really the well-being of the patient plays a role. And here, pain, because pain is defined as a subjective feeling. So pain is when it hurts. The one thing that we haven't approached is the plasticity of the system. And we tend to think that a sensory system has a certain setting and that stays like the setting of your microphone is set to a certain sensitivity. And this is not true for the nociceptive system. It really becomes much more sensitive. Whenever something important happens, it immediately becomes much more sensitive and then it becomes boring, then it becomes less sensitive again. So it's highly plastic, and this is not really appreciated very much. The sensitivity of the nociceptive system is different between people, but in the same person, it is also very different over time. The simplest thing is if you consider you really have an injury, could be a minor injury, so you don't even see a doctor, you have, have a cut or a burn or some kind of an injury doing gardening work this time of the year or what have not, then the injured body part becomes more sensitive to potentially damaging stimuli. So many things that normally wouldn't really hurt, relatively mild touch or sharp objects are more painful. And you may also notice that you are more sensitive to to heating, so that heating is actually painful. And that's a protective mechanism. So the warning system of the body enhances its sensitivity, its gain, whenever there has been an injury. And it does it at all levels. It does it even at the very peripheral nerve endings. Here we know some of the mechanisms, phosphorylation of certain channels, and so further and so on. But also in the processing of the signals in the central nervous system. Here we know most detailed information about the spinal cord. So when the spinal cord has received a strong warning signal, then it becomes more sensitive to the next signals, just as if it would be listening whether there's more to come. And that would be the central sensitization, and the other would be the peripheral sensitization. So it's learned, for want of a better word, what happened last time, and works to avoid that same thing happening again? It is a learning mechanism, absolutely. Many people use the word pain memory, and it's not quite clear what they mean. If you look at memory research, there are many different types of memory. And the simplest type of memory is uh, basically non-associative just by repeating stimuli. And there are two things that could happen. One thing is the response could become less. That's called habituation. 
when the stimulus is boring or unimportant, usually when it's weak, or sensitization could happen, which is when the stimulus was strong and important or threatening. And this is exactly what the nociceptive system does. So when there's a real injury, that is important. So by the real injury, it becomes more sensitive in the periphery, in the central nervous system. But this is a memory process that doesn't last very long. It is long-term memory, but in the sense of about one day. I usually compare this with studying for an exam, where you memorize things for the next day, and then you start forgetting. And the same thing happens with our warning system. If the injury heals, then we forget about it. But if we have repetitive injuries, then we reinforce the learning, and maybe we can have a more longer-lasting memory. So the term memory is absolutely appropriate. So what happens when you say normally that memory will go within a day? Yeah. What happens if it doesn't? That's really the big question. An interesting thing about chronic pain is that many people can have had the same injury and don't develop chronic pain. So the idea is that there must be individual differences in susceptibility to develop chronic pain for some kind of an injury. I mentioned after an injury, normally the pain goes away after one or two days. It's actually also true for major surgery, so most people can be discharged very quickly and they don't have pain. However, some 10 or 20 percent still have pain. And the big question is, is this due to a delay in the healing process? Maybe in some cases. But in some cases, it may really reflect a different a priori setting of the warning system that in these patients, the warning system has a longer memory than in, in other people. The individual differences, we can actually me measure those. And the idea is that maybe an important contributor to chronic pain is this individual susceptibility to have longer-lasting pain memory than the average population. That's Professor Rolf Dietlif Triede of Heidelberg University. I'll just remind you of my usual words of caution that whilst we believe the information and opinions on airing pain are accurate and sound, based on the best judgments available, you should always consult your health professional on any matter relating to your health and well-being. He or she is the only person who knows you, your circumstances and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf. Don't forget that you can download all the previous editions of Airing Pain or obtain CD copies direct from Pain Concern. If you'd like to put a question to Pain Concerns panel of experts or just make a comment about these programmes, then please do so via our blog, message board, email, Facebook, Twitter or pen and paper. All the contact details are at our website, which is painconcern.org.uk. Now, I'll end this edition of Airing Pain with what may or may not be that stupid question I referred to earlier. I'll let you be the judge. Can pain be measured? Usually I say there are no stupid questions. So this is my one exception. This is according to the definition. Pain is what a person feels. It's defined as an unpleasant emotional and sensory perception that is related to injury but may also be unrelated to injury. And it's just the subjective first-person experience that's pain. There is a term for the other thing, the things that we can measure objectively. That's nociception goes back to a famous British reflex physiologist, Sherrington, who noticed that some reflexes are elicited by potentially damaging stimuli, no matter which modality they come from. They elicit defensive reflexes. 
and this led a neurobiologist to discover the nociceptive system that senses either damage or impending damage. It's the warning system. And activities of this warning system can be measured, of course. You can start in the periphery, even in people. You can measure the peripheral nerve activity. You can measure reflexes also in people, spinal reflexes. You can measure cardiovascular reflexes, and you can measure brain activity with electrophysiological means like EEG, or you can do PET imaging. But this is really looking at signal processing in the nociceptive system. And whether or not this activity leads to pain depends on the internal state of the brain and many things. So really, pain or not is the subjective report. That's the definition. I mean, that is interesting because we're conducting this conversation in a dark, a pit of a room with no light, with actually very, very unpleasantly loud air conditioning. If we were outside in the sunshine, my pain score and perhaps your pain score would be completely different. Well, absolutely. One of the most powerful mechanisms to modulate pain is attention. The Effect size is pretty much the same as that of strong analgesic medications. You could say if you have a headache, so if you do mental arithmetic, you can get as much pain relief as with a painkiller. Now, when you have a headache, you probably don't want to do the mental arithmetic, so it doesn't have a practical consequence, but the effect of attentional control is extremely powerful. This is where talking therapies, cognitive behavioral therapy, visualization, meditation, all play their part in our pain. Absolutely. So the cognitive part of cognitive behavioral therapy is relatively explicit about these things, and the behavioral part is less explicit, where we just use learning mechanisms of the nervous system to enhance some behaviors over other behaviors.